0: The invitation is the purpose of worship. There's no valid reason for the construction of buildings, either for the conducting of worship without the inviting of men and women and boys and girls to give their hearts to Jesus Christ for those of His people to do as He wills with regard to their commitment and their personal need. As we open the Scriptures today, I'm asking the Spirit of God, to apply the Word of God to our hearts. And I am asking you to begin by praying with me right now after this fashion. Lord, I come to worship today. I am yours. I open my heart to your Word and I ask you to tell me what you want me to do. Father, reveal yourself to us. Do with us as you please. We belong to you. Now minister life through the Word. Quicken us by the Spirit, and may we respond so that worship will be real and complete and satisfying and meaningful. I thank you now for what you're about to do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Christian people who have been touched by the love of God often have a a problem in understanding how a God of mercy and a God of love could also be a God of judgment. Sometimes in our soft-heartedness, it is good that we are not God. Though it is rather an enigma for very often, we find ourselves very understanding and very knowing and considerate of our own failings, but very harsh and judgmental in regards to the failings of other people. And yet this tension between justice and mercy ought not really to disturb us that much. For when mercy comes to its fullness, mercy acts in justice. In the final analysis, when the day which God promises is realized, mercy will find its fulfillment in absolute judgment. In the economy of God, who does not see or understand as we do, justice and mercy are synonymous. They are the same thing, this justice and this mercy for which we plead. In light of the world, in light of the fact that it has gone its own way and forgotten God and run amok for so long, justice is indeed the mercy for which the world cries. God does not always explain to us in terms that we can understand, nor is He under any obligation to do so. But what He does is tell us that we are to trust Him, to wait on Him, to obey Him and leave Him to care for the consequences of what we and others do with our lives. In this passage this morning, Peter contrasts the judgment that comes to the people of God as well as to the godless. Let us look at a proven judgment that God has ordained and beginning in verse 17, here is what I have called a designated time. The time of judgment is a designated time. It is an appointed time. It is not by accident. It is not by happenstance. It is not haphazard. It will come in the economy of God when the time of God is right and when God acts, there will be no reversing, no turning away from His judgment. With regard to the wicked, the writer to Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this... The judgment, inescapably, there will come a day of reckoning and a day of judgment for all. This word time in the Greek, the word kairos, is a word that means a critical and decisive moment. It is as though it is on the calendar in indelible ink. It shall not be forestalled, it shall not be hastened, but it shall come when God has appointed it to. It is inescapable, it is irrevocable, it cannot be taken back, it cannot be avoided. It is the lot of every man who has ever or will ever live. Notice that he says here, judgment will begin with, or the Greek says, from the household of God. There is question in interpretation of this passage whether he is saying that God will let the hammer down on His people or that beginning at the house of God and going from the house of God, God will judge those who persecute His people. Somehow I think that the Scripture it leaves room to understand this very easily both ways. Jesus in writing, speaking to the seven churches of Asia Minor is as recorded in the first chapters of Revelation. let it be known that His patience will cease with His people before His patience ceases with the wicked. Jesus said, To whom much is given, much is required. He said to the church there at Laodicea, Oh, I wish that you were either hot or... Or cold, if you were one or the other, I could take it, but you're nothing, you're wishy-washy and indifferent, and I will, in judgment, unless you repent, spit you out of my mouth. There is a way in which the sins of God's people bring down the judgment of God on their lives. It has nothing to do with their salvation, but in, on their lives. I would remind you that sin bears its consequences Sin left its marks on the body of the Son of God and even the resurrection could not erase the prints of the nails from the hands of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. I read in the Scriptures the other day where it says, He who judges without mercy and rejoices in arrogance shall receive judgment without mercy. Judgment truly begins at the house of God. I would remind you, however, this word judgment here in the English, in the Greek is the word verdict. It is not the act of judging. For you see, Jesus Christ took our judgment. At the cross, He bore the price of our sins. He suffered, He bled, He died. But the verdict on our sins will be acted out in our lives beginning from the house of God. And what Peter goes on to say in this verse, telling us that judgment is certain, both for the people of God and for the wicked, what he goes on to say is this, if the people of God suffer, how awful shall be the judgment and the suffering that come on the wicked. Do we not know as Christians that even fairly routine things in life are beyond us? Have you not wondered as a Christian, if you know the Lord, how anybody can endure this life without His presence? I believe that Peter is saying, both in this life and at the judgment when the great white throne is raised and the wicked are brought before God, that if God in all of His love and with all of His power imparting imparting to us His grace still allows us and it is necessary for us in the fires of life to suffer and we belong to Him, what will judgment be for those who do not know Him, who forget Him, who reject Him? Judgment is a designated time. It will come irrevocably, inescapably. No power and no individual will be able to avoid it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we may rejoice, as Paul says, for God has not destined us to wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 14, after having... Talked for a whole paragraph on the passing of judgment on another man in his opinion and on the folly of taking the position of God to himself in judgment. He says in verse 10, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all, and the we shall all is the people of God, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. The fires of life and the judgment of which Peter speaks, starting from the house of God, are those experiences in life which refine us and test us and purify us and prepare us for the day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there it is that not our salvation will be reviewed, for we are saved and sealed for eternity by the blood of the Lamb, but there reward will be determined. Paul casts light on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 11, where he says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, the day, the day of judgment will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon the foundation remains, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Our trials as his children prepare us for the standing before him when He shall determine not our salvation, but the degree of our reward before Him. And let us recall in these days of our lives to take the long look, to realize that God is just, that all of his dealings are good, and that he has promised to take everything we face and everything we experience because we are His people, and use those things to our benefit. Romans 8:28 says, "For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, the good of those who are the called, according to His purpose." All of His acts are justice. We do not understand it. We cannot see it. We cannot analyze it. We cannot figure it out. But it is true and we may trust Him and take a long look at life. One day, Paul tells us, we shall know as we are known and we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. We are promised in the Scripture that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But the Christian experience is that the fire of trial is a pleasant place to await the coming of the Lord when we are within His will, when we are committed to His purpose and possessed by His Spirit And the bed of ease is like a bed of nails when the child of God is without him and away from him and rebellious to him. The time of judgment is a designated time. But notice in verse 18, this time of judgment will be a difficult time. For he says, and if it is with great difficulty that the righteous are saved, What will become of the godless man and the sinner? What does he mean that it is difficult for the righteous to be saved? Well, from the standpoint of God, it was so difficult that the only way God could buy salvation was to put flesh on and become a man and shed blood as a sinless sacrifice so that we might be forgiven and made righteous and made right with God. Oh, how easy it is for we who handle the things of God with often a deadening familiarity to forget the great difficulty by which God bought our salvation. And from the human standpoint, though our salvation is not at issue, it is difficult for us because we are constantly struggling with the pull of the old nature. We are constantly pulled down by the call of that nature which is at war with God, which hates God, which rebelled against God, and which tried to usurp the very throne and possession of God. So salvation is bought at a difficult price, and it is difficult... For us to live it out as Peter has written elsewhere, let every man continue to work out the application, the expression of his salvation day by day with great fear and trembling. In Romans 7, Paul addresses this issue. As he says, the good thing that I would do, I I don't find myself able to do. And the wickedness, the evil that I don't want to do, the inability to control myself, the inability to control my mouth, the inability to control my thoughts, all of those things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. So then Paul says, I find within my body a war that the willing to do right is present with me, but how to perform it I find not. He goes on in his discussion and then he cries and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, he says, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh... I serve the law of sin. Paul says, if that is so, then it is a principle. It is no longer I that sin, but it is sin that dwells within me and masters me. He goes on to say, when I am converted and when I am convinced of God's power and filled with His Spirit, it is not I who serve Him, but His Spirit which lives in me that serves Himself through me. As we mentioned in the passage last week, if all of the righteousness and goodness we have is from God, what right have we to be proud of it or to be puffed up about it or to lord it over or to be above or to look down on anybody else? For God has not committed His prerogatives to anybody. And all that we are, we are simply by the grace of God. Paul says the righteous are saved with great difficulty because it cost God all that He had and it is a struggle for us to live as He would have us to live day by day. But then he reiterates, he repeats the point, if it is thus with the righteous. What shall it be for those who are disobedient, for those who are godless, for those who are sinners? Here are three stages in reprobation, in rebellion against God, in a final and and fatal setting of oneself against God in a refusal to be and to do what God wants us to be and to do. First there is disobedience Sometimes we think disobedience is a small thing because the matter in which we disobey is a small matter. But that is not so. Jesus said, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in the many. But if you are faithless in the little things that someone has given you, who then will trust you with great and important things? It begins with disobedience and then they become godless. The word godless is analogous to the word ungodly. And you know, when we say the word ungodly or godless, we conjure up visions of atheism. We conjure up visions of atrocity and murder and all sorts of vile sins. But in its most reasonable application, what that word really means is not like God. I would remind you from 1 Peter 4, 8 and from 1 John 3, 7 to 11 that the most ungodly and godless and unholy thing that anybody can do is to fail to love others as Christ has loved us. And you may know without any question when you find yourself exercising judgment that you have a much greater problem than the one whom you judge. For you are godless and ungodly. And you, like Lucifer himself, are assaulting the throne of God and trying to take away his prerogative, which is the prerogative of judgment. And it begins by disobedience. And then there is godlessness. And then there is one who is called a sinner. And this word in the Greek is a little different than the other word that we translate sinner. This means one who is dominated by sin, who lives by sin, who lives for sin, who is consumed by his sin. And it all begins with a little act of disobedience. There is a lesson to be learned for God's people there For we cannot lose our salvation. That is impossible. If it can, then God's a liar and the blood of Jesus was to none effect. But we can go the way of the world by disobedience. Our conscience can become steeled against the voice of God and then we can become godless and begin to be the watchdog of the world and the policeman of the world of which God has no need. And then we can be consumed with sin sin. And in the end, like as when the earth opened to swallow the rebellious against Moses, God will bring the judgment of death, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 15, in order that we may receive our salvation, but the work of our lives will be destroyed. We will be saved, yet so as by fire, for we have done nothing for Him. It is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, he says. And if it is so with us, what shall the fate of the godless be? Oh, how terrible to consider what they will endure. As God's children, we need to do two things. We need to rejoice that we will never accept or endure the fate of the godless, but we need to weep and be brokenhearted over their fate. Judgment is a time designated. Judgment is a difficult time. And then in verse 19, the time of judgment is a desired time. For is it not the experience of the people of God that often we cry within ourselves, Lord, how long? We cry with the prophet, is the arm of the Lord shortened that he cannot save or his ear deafened that he cannot hear? And we say, oh, Lord, when will you restore peace and vindicate your people and exercise judgment? Judgment is a desired time. Peter comes back to the theme of this letter, which is tried by fire. And he says, therefore, because this is true, Let the one who suffers not weep and wail and bemoan, but let him be certain that his suffering is according to the will of God. And then, if it is, trust God and rejoice. Persecution can never destroy the church, there's never come a day when that could happen. The church thrives when it is persecuted. Good times can hurt the church. Carelessness and eternal strife can threaten the church, but even these cannot kill the church. You see, the Word of God says that the enemy of God cannot touch us. Now I want you to follow me for a moment. The Christian army is the only army in the world where all of the casualties are in the barracks. And the most damaging and dangerous thing that a Christian can do is be a party to hurting other Christians. The nature of the faith of a Christian is in great question when that Christian feels compelled of God to be the world's policeman. And most especially when that Christian feels compelled of God to lower the hammer of judgment on other Christians. Read Romans 14. Read the Corinthians passage about sowing and reaping and then you will understand why you experience what you experience. For you will have what you say. Jesus said, by your words you will be judged. By your words you will be condemned. And if words of judgment and condemnation of the seed that you sow, they are what you will reap from the hand of other people. That is not the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about. He went to great lengths in this fourth chapter to tell us that a Christian has no right to bellyache or complain for one moment if he suffers as a consequence of his own sin. He says, rather, if we suffer, let us be sure that we suffer for Jesus in accordance with the will of God. This word, trust, Some translations say, let us entrust our souls to him as to a faithful creator is a very vivid word in the Greek. You see, in the ancient days, there were no banks or no financial institutions. And man's wealth consisted in things that he possessed, objects, objects of art or objects of furniture or objects of precious metal or jewels. And so if a man were going somewhere and he could not carry all of his wealth with him, he would have to do something to it. And in Greek literature, this word entrust is the word used when a man took everything that he possessed and without any guarantees at all, he gave it to a trusted friend to hold for him. Now that was a lot of trust. That was a lot of trust. And we are told that when we are aware that our suffering is according to the will of God, let us then entrust all that we have to God with no guarantee but His goodness, with no guarantee but His love, with no guarantee but the fact that He loves us and we've experienced His love as He is a... Faithful creator. This word, faithful, is is not an uncommon concept, but it is the only place in the Bible that this word occurs. He is one who is beyond question, beyond reproach, who always does what he has promised to do. And then as the psalmist says in Psalm 37, let us trust God and do good no matter what. The thrust of these verses is that the Christian in the midst of suffering at the hands of the ungodly must never treat the ungodly as they have treated him for God loves their souls and desires their salvation. And we as Christ are to love and do good even to those who despitefully use us. We are to bless those who curse us and pray for those who persecute us. Let us weep over the fate of the godless Thankful that we shall never know it. You and I, if you belong to Jesus, have been bought by the blood. We are taught by the Spirit. We are objects of His love. We are the subjects of His power. We may be troubled, but we are not distressed. We may be perplexed, but we are not in despair. We may be cast down, but we are not destroyed. We may be staggered, but we are not fallen. We may pass through the valley of the shadow of death, but we shall be saved and preserved and delivered. Judgment is a designated time. It will be a very difficult time It is a time in some ways which God's people desire. Let us weep over the fate of the lost and let us be committed to touching them with the good news that Christ, God Himself has died that we might live. May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm just glad even though it'd be easier it's sometimes that your word is, is honest and true and candid with us in every way. Lord, it's not a comforting thought to realize that judgment will fall because all of us know and love people who are subject to judgment because they have not accepted and received Christ. But Lord, it would be dishonest And it would be deceptive and it would be no act of love if you concealed it from us. Lord, it is disconcerting to realize that even grace and love in the blood of Jesus does not prevent us from suffering consequences in this life from the seed that we have sown, but it's true. Lord, no one of us has a right to condemn or to pass a verdict on any other of us, for all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and you have laid on Jesus all of our sins and all of our iniquities. Lord, I stand today before this people as a man of clay, as a man of flesh saved by the grace of God through no position or attitude of superiority I stand on behalf of this people before you rejoicing that you have delivered us and desiring that you might use us to deliver others from the judgment to come. Father, show us what we are. Answer the question that we asked in prayer as we began this message. Tell us what you want us to do. Give us the courage to do it. I thank you that you will and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.